what was more interesting to me was how this question of taste must have always kind of shaped my reality, even as a very small child. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. For our partnership with the brilliant Storysmith Bookshop in Bristol, we're now offering a Patreon subscription service. Subscribers will get special discount on all books at Storysmith, online and in person, exclusive book giveaways each month, free live events, free merchandise, early access to new episodes, and opportunities to submit questions to our upcoming guests. Visit patreon.com forward slash tender buttons to subscribe. Subscriber support allows us to bring you more in-depth conversations with some of the most exciting contemporary writers around and helps to grow the Tender Buttons community. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, like and share to help us keep reaching new listeners. This week we chat to Natalie Ola, the journalist and cultural critic whose writing is published by The New Statesman, The Guardian, The TLS, Five Dials, Jacobin and Tribune. She holds a BA in English Literature from Oxford and an MA in Postcolonial Studies from the University of Sussex. Her first book, Steal As Much As You Can, How To Win The Culture Wars In An Age Of Austerity, was published in 2019. She is also the author of Look Again, Class and Bad Taste or The Politics Of Ugliness which is out now. Bad Taste is an interrogation of the importance we place on seemingly objective ideas of taste in a culture that is saturated by imagery and the dangerous impact this has on our identities, communities and politics. This book is dedicated to understanding the industries of taste, from the food we eat to the way we spend our free time, exposes the shallow waters of good and bad taste and the rigid hierarchies that uphold this age-old dichotomy. Bad Taste is a revelatory exploration of the intersection between consumerism, class, desire and power, an arousing call to arms to break free from the restrictive ways we see those around us. Hello Natalie, welcome to Tender Buttons. Hi, thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about your new book, Bad Taste, and I really just wanted to open the interview with kind of one of the images that you open the book with which is a huge cardboard cutout that you describe in your local video shop in the 90s as a child of Pamela Anderson and you kind of talk about this sort of image of femininity or a certain kind of femininity that she represented that seemed exciting and severe and outlandish in some way and throughout the rest of the book you speak a lot about the illusion of scarcity, its relationship to taste, and the ways that working class people often have to repress this this desire for exuberance or excess or kind of self-expression, and how that, that image of Pamela Anderson, even though you were very young, somehow spoke to those ideas within you. And that was something that I really identified with as someone who grew up working class in the 90s, early 2000s. And I just wondered if you could speak about what exactly it was about that image that spoke to you and why you wanted to frame the book around it in that way. Yeah, I think that that image for, you know, personal reasons has always just been in my mind. It's very vivid for me. And and I find that, I think that the things that resonate with you when you're a small child are probably telling you something about 
your curiosities and what it is that matters to you sort of as an adult. Um, and so there are just certain sort of like motifs or scenes from my childhood that I found myself over the years coming back to and wondered why they're so vivid still in my mind. Because there must be millions of encounters that you have like that as a child every single you know week. So what was it about the fact that this image of Pamela Anderson has never really left my mind? That was something that I wanted to explore. It's something actually that I think about in my approach to writing more generally is to kind of go with those scenes from your perhaps your own life or those kind of fixations those obsessions they're normally telling you something um and they're normally kind of proof of something that needs to be kind of unpacked or explored through your work and so that was one for me and I think I say in the introduction to the book as well that when thinking about this subject of taste a little bit more rationally and looking at it from a kind of socio-political perspective you then start to reflect and think okay where has this played out in my own life and there will be sort of again many many instances that you can recall that include sort of you know job interviews interactions with school teachers interactions with bosses at work or landlords or bank managers um but that these are almost for, for my purposes those are almost too obvious and kind of yeah they, they were too obvious and they and they were too familiar in people's minds. People know sort of those experiences. But what was more interesting to me was how this question of taste must have always kind of shaped my reality, even as a very small child. And that, I think, is very interesting, is to kind of keep going back, keep going back, keep kind of pushing an idea to its sort of like most extreme point and think, where does this play out in my life? And it's actually had these effects on even this kind of like small, most incidental moments of my childhood that still stay in my mind. Um, I think as well, what I find quite interesting about that is I remember Pamela Anderson being on the TV in Baywatch. I remember certain men in my family having Baywatch on and my mum always getting annoyed that it was on the TV because there were kids around and, you know, it just it was a little bit, it's like a little bit too kind of like sexually charged for children to be in the house and this show on with women running along the beach. And I don't know whether I remember, or I don't know whether I realised Pamela Anderson in the film Barbed Wire and on that cardboard cutout was the same woman from the TV show. But what I do think is quite interesting is that um, her appeal to me in that moment had nothing to do with her sort of like sexuality or the way that she had been sexualized and therefore sort of made sort of scary and bad to me as a kid. It had everything to do with this sort of like total lack of apology for, you know, how she chose to present. Um, and I genuinely wanted to rent it. I mean, I kept badgering my mum every time we went to the, into the video shop. And she was like, what do you want to rent? And I was like that. And she was like, you're not renting the 18 kind of action thriller horror film, Barbed Wire. There's no way. Um, but it really was a point of fixation for me for, I want to say, years. Perhaps it was only months. You don't know when you're a kid, everything seems longer and bigger. But yeah, I genuinely did have an obsession with Pamela Anderson when I was a child. I wonder if we could come to the title a little bit. So, and like the subtitle to it as well. So it's Bad Taste, The Politics of Ugliness. And you write quite early on about how growing up notions of like trash or bad taste were something that felt like subversive for you to reclaim as a pushback against a society that like deems certain bodies or desires to be like marginalized or unworthy. So I wondered about the title and how you came to that and whether that was early on in the writing process or where that came. It was actually, it was probably the first 
thing I decided on in writing the book. I just knew that I wanted to write this book called Bad Taste. The subtitle, however, The Politics of Ugliness, was something that I poured over for years. Mm. And actually, it was only quite late on in the process. Um, I was really deliberating over it. And I still wasn't particularly confident with the subtitle until I saw the design of the book and it all fell into place. And I thought it was the right decision. Um, So I knew I wanted to go with that idea of bad taste. There was always a question mark over whether it would be misconstrued as um, when, for example, politicians make politically incorrect jokes. It's often described as being in poor taste. I do touch on that actually later on in the book, but I did worry that that would be how it was construed and that would that people would assume that was the emphasis of the book and that we were looking at instances in which that had happened. Um, so that was just a reservation and just kind of sharing that. In terms of um, my own sort of attitudes towards taste and this idea when I was younger of kind of like embracing trashiness, that wasn't conscious to me until Mm. much later. So I was just rebelling, I suppose. Um, There is a tendency that I think hopefully lots of listeners will be able to kind of relate to of working class people, but also I come from second generation immigrant family as well, um, where I think this tendency is particularly kind of rife is there's there's a sort of like anxiety to assimilate of like a need to assimilate in order to be able to secure a degree of financial standing. And that is completely sympathetic and relatable in the parents and the grandparents who emigrated and arrived here and probably did face all kinds of persecution and discrimination. And then there's this sort of pushback from younger generations of being like, I want to be who I am and I don't care about conforming and I don't want to just like focus on making loads of money. And, And I think that that's something that I definitely experienced as a young person so there was a real there was maybe a slightly added pressure on top of just being working class of also having this sort of like immigrant perceived stigma that we wanted to kind of overcome as well so wanting to be a kind of respectable citizen and wanting to be considered a kind of viable person in the job market etc and I always pushed back back against it much to like my parents sort of frustration I think and I didn't really know why I wouldn't really have been able to tell you at that time you know my reasons for doing it and it's only really in hindsight that I realize Mm. that that's what I was pushing against it's probably what a lot of the friends that I had at that time were also pushing against and now I look at the kind of fashions that we embraced and the styles and the subcultures that we were into and it seems to be very clear that that was what was going on but yes it didn't start to crystallize in my mind as as being that and being kind of subject for inquiry and something that I wanted to write about and explore further and and even know like what the secondary reading would be to kind of better understand that until I was much older Hmm. and I think I think that's the thing I think um sorry just to go on a little bit more I think I kind of had these hunches and these feelings that almost subconsciously dictated what I was reading and through that reading and that journey of discovery because the more you, you know the more you read the more you realize you haven't read and with every book you read are like kind of five other secondary texts that you then go off and read and through that process of learning and discovering I realized that this thing that had just been a kind of emotion to me all of my life actually was a real kind of like material phenomenon and there were well, there was a kind of great intellectual tradition devoted to understanding it and explaining why it was happening and that to me was the kind of 
the like light bulb moment the moment mm. that I was like I now know what I want to do with my life or mm. where I want to focus I really loved what you were um, thinking about Debord's idea of society of spectacle and talking about I think to quote you you said fear of judgment is a condition of working class life created through a necessity of survival being impervious to the judgment of other people is knowing you are not dependent upon it for survival and I thought that was just such brilliant insight into this world we live in that's mediated by images like quite literally online and through advertising and stuff but also just in the way that we present to the world and I wondered if you could talk about what you mean by that a little bit more yeah so that comment I think was a sort of pushback against a lot of pop psychology around you know just like believe in yourself and don't worry about what other people think and I think that that reflex is much more comes much more naturally to people who haven't ever had to worry about what other people think of them whose livelihoods weren't dependent on other people kind of granting them access or permission to certain you know places or spaces or opportunities um so that was that's what i was sort of saying with that comment um about debor he is someone who was kind of maligned by the kind of intellectual establishment and died quite sadly, you know, of kind of addiction prematurely. And his ideas were also sort of dismissed. And I think that there has been a revival of interest in what he was saying, um, particularly with the proliferation in kind of visual communication technology, phones, tablets, laptops, etc., and this kind of onslaught of visual stimuli that we just can't escape. And the problem with that, I think, is when we look at these sort of questions of kind of cultural hegemony, who gets to kind of be absorbed into the dominant culture and who doesn't, when that collides with this technology, what we see kind of emerging is this, I mean, and this technology, what it does is it encourages a very facile and very surface reading of the world because none of us could possibly process the volume of information that were being supplied by these phones with any degree of like accuracy or depth. And so we're being coaxed into a situation where we have to make very rash and superficial judgments. So when that tendency collides with this sort of like culture of sort of social mobility and of having to kind of like assimilate culturally, what you end up with is this sort of like fixation on taste. Like do you, can you very quickly signal to the people in charge that you are one of them, that you understand their cultural mores, that you know how to kind of fit in very comfortably with their, com- with their companies, um you know culture that's another thing that I talk about and that's increasingly predicated on how you present visually and superficially yeah definitely I I think it's I think what feels part of what feels radical about the book is that how you take things that are maybe often trivialized like thinking about beauty or thinking about um the body which can be trivialized or just pop culture and giving it serious like political weight and kind of socio-political thought and yeah I guess why do you feel like those things are worth looking at? Because I think that there's this sort of ridiculous separation in our thinking between the sort of like the political and the serious and the um, the kind of intellectual and the theoretical and then there's like real world phenomenon and I think this separation is encouraged by our media I think that our media kind of encourages this uh, sort of anti-intellectual way of thinking um, of assuming that there's these sort of like highbrow intellectual uh, disciplines that are impenetrable to the normal person and then there's like real world stuff 
And actually, of course, all of those big like macro level forces, you know, politics, policymaking, shifts in power, economics, etc., they're bearing out on our day-to-day lives. We know this because we know, for example, you know, that our like rents are tied to these big tidal shifts. We know that our like mortgages are tied to it. But so are all of our like relationships. So is like our interaction with the mirror. Like when we wake up in the morning and look at ourselves and whatever emotion it is that we're feeling, that is connected to all of this other stuff. And for me, there's two reasons for doing that. One, I want to make explicit that those things are connected. But two, I also think it's better to approach it from that angle to say, like, you know, these are things that you might encounter day to day and not think much of, but actually they can teach us so much more about the world that we live in because that's a more relatable way of writing. So rather than just writing abstractly and looking at these kind of forces abstractly is to kind of tether them to personal experience. That being said... I didn't want the personal to like dominate the book too much. And I didn't want it to be a memoir and I didn't want it to be like my complaint against the world, if that makes sense. Mm, definitely. That was something I was really interested to ask you about, how that process of like where the personal emerged, the craft of that amongst your more wider political arguments. That's such an interesting question. So when I first set out writing this book, I didn't want to write anything personal at all. And uh, my editor was really keen for me to incorporate some personal and anecdotal material. And I kind of violently pushed back against it. And I'd sort of written something that was thinly personal in my first book. And I felt that there was maybe a slight emphasis particularly on women writers to incorporate their own personal experience and that they were only kind of seen to be as valuable as their kind of personal experience was interesting and that they weren't really valued for their like thoughts or ideas so there was this tussle and I didn't want to do this to begin with and then slowly but surely I started to see how there were elements of my own story that were quite interesting and quite illuminating and could serve as like nice ways in to talking about bigger ideas and the more I started writing I realized that I absolutely needed to do this because I kind of wanted to take the reader on the journey that I have been on personally to you know arriving at finding these things interesting particularly as well because it is the kind of subject matter that's not often talked about so I think there does have to be a degree of kind of like explaining to a reader why are you reading about this subject why have I decided to write about this why do I think it's valuable and interesting so I did start to do that And now I'm in a position of thinking, I don't really know, because I don't know whether that um, insistence on women not writing about their personal experience might also be just as kind of patriarchal and misogynist. Mm. And this idea that like anything that's personal is therefore uh, sort of less weighty or important um, and trivial. So now I don't know. I'm sort of like, I'm back to square one again. I'm like, I don't know how I feel about you know, the kind of politics of like personal writing. Um, But that's the kind of journey that I went on. I didn't want to write anything personal at all to begin with. I was sort of persuaded. And in that persuasion, I actually started to see the value in it and really now think that I couldn't have written the book without doing that. And it is is the book that it should have been with the personal dimension included. But it's interesting, the question of women and writing their personal experience yeah definitely I also wondered whether because it's a book about taste is it possible to talk about taste without making clear your own position in the world 
obviously it's not possible to write anything that's neutral and objective. But within this book particularly, I wondered whether it needed some of that personal information to know, to, to like understand your position, which felt really important in terms of the argument. Absolutely. I think as well, given the type of book that it is, it really did need that. So the kind of, um, it really wasn't like the source text for it, but it was a kind of, it sparked the idea for it. There is a text from 1979 called Distinction, written by a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu. And he was a working class French man who served in the Algerian war. And all of those experiences informed his politics. But what he produced was a quite like clinical work sociology using um, kind of empirical analysis so he didn't need to disclose his kind of personal background and what had led to his thinking but I was writing something that was going to be a bit more entertaining and anecdotal and kind of rooted in pop culture and for that reason I absolutely think I did need to sort of give some indication of my own kind of like socioeconomic experience but there are aspects of it that I absolutely haven't included at all like I said the kind of the legacy of immigration Um, which I think really does play a huge part in all of this. I also don't, I didn't want to disclose too much information about my personal life because I also didn't feel, I mean, beyond just explaining that, you know, I grew up working class and I found it difficult to assimilate beyond kind of going into that level of detail. I didn't feel like I I wanted to have to like pander to a critic that says like, well, what are your credentials for doing this? Why do you feel you're entitled to do this? I mean, I just think I am entitled to do it and that's why I did it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's, yeah, some of the most profound moments for me are like, for example, when you write about the influence of like Bill Clinton's inauguration in the 90s and the fashion of Chelsea Clinton and compare it to like your parents' wedding. I feel like these beautiful, like just glimmers of like leveling that happened between like the really local and the personal, like your parents' wedding and these global events. But this was of similar magnitude in our lives. Those moments that you're able to do within your book feel really profound in the way that they like map between the local and global. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Yeah, and I, they're they're my favorite things to encounter in stories as well. I'm not much of a kind of, I don't tend to read history per se. I mean, sometimes I will if I really need to know about a subject. But what I really like is when you see these sort of like, these big moments in history play out in quiet, small interactions between Mm. people. You see that in, I'm really not aligning myself with Tolstoy here, I realise how pretentious that sounds. But, you know, when you kind of have like, yeah, huge like wars that Mm. are happening, actually what's kind of interesting about them is how they affect people's relationships in the domestic space far away from where maybe the war is happening it's those reverberations those permutations that I find interesting and I think it's really good to join up those dots because I think that there is a tendency like I say particularly among the British public that I think is fed quite a biased kind of media narrative to help people start joining the dots between certain aspects of their personal and domestic lives with stuff that's happening elsewhere. I think that's what would ultimately lead to kind of like a wider kind of political awakening Mm. is to not see themselves separate from, you know, a wider humanity that is going through these sort of like big tidal shifts. I wondered if we could talk about in, in thinking about taste, um, you speak a lot about the myth of scarcity culture that we're all 
living in under capitalism, but also I love the way you wrote about dominant taste makers as celebrating scarcity. And you talk about things like Kinfolk magazine or kind of, um, you know, the proliferation of things which are handmade or made from raw materials or, you know, from clothes to food to things like ceramics. And the idea that things that have taken a lot of time in the age of like mass consumerism and mass production are suddenly the things that have value. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, because it felt like a very pertinent insight. Yeah. So, I mean, I pretty much we know that all of the problems we face have got nothing to do really with population size. There is enough space on this earth to feed everybody on this earth comfortably to house everybody on this earth comfortably there are there's plenty of space in central london for everybody to live dignified life the problem is that a lot of that those assets land property etc are hoarded by wealthy people and used as assets used to kind of generate capital and wealth and they prevent people from being able to access them so scarcity is this fake construct um and I was just thinking then about how like scarcity sort of plays out in our sort of like aesthetic sensibility and the fact that what was kind of seeing in that kind of austerity aesthetic that's been very fashionable for like the last sort of 10 to 15 years is this kind of like transformation into luxury of just kind of like basic sustenance and things that are like handmade, hand wrought, quite kind of basic and simple are sort of like trans transformed into luxury items and they're often the most expensive there's other reasons why that happens like I said about there's a kind of discussion of time in the book as well and time being the sort of most valuable commodity in today's economy it's the thing that most people are shortest on and the other thing that I find quite interesting is that kind of conspicuous consumption which is sort of demonstrating one's wealth and status through the owning of certain kind of status symbols and goods really hasn't been the kind of like dominant form of like distinction making or kind of peacocking for over a hundred years like the real kind of demonstration of wealth is through free leisure time time unburdened from work and the kind of spoils of that as well so it's not just literally posting, you know, you're traveling constantly, although that is obviously part of it, but it's also like in the things that you've just like handmade or like rustled up, because obviously the only people that are able to do that, are the people that have the time to learn a craft, practice a craft, cook big, hearty, delicious meals for their family day after day after day. Now, I think that all people, by the way, like the kind of the, the objects of these tendencies, so like a beautiful pot or a beautiful plate of food isn't something that I'm mocking at all. I mean, I think those things should be available to absolutely every single person on earth. What I'm sort of mocking is their place in a kind of hierarchy of uh, status and distinction and their transformation into kind of like luxuries. It feels like there's a through line there as well with your Steven as much as you can book in terms of like writing there about like the fetishization of like austerity aesthetics and how that culturally, that cultural project paved the way for the like economic brutality of austerity. And I feel like that has a through line with bad taste in the way that you write about like this fetishization of austerity. I wondered if you could like maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah, in that book, I think I tend to focus more on the kind of fetishization of working people which is mm. still a big 
gripe for me, yeah. um, particularly in the 90s. Like there was, a, there was a sense, there was a kind of synthetic sense of like liberation for working people because there were loads of working people involved in like the media and they were on TV and they were like taking coke at the Groucho Club in London and they were, you know, hanging out with uh, politicians and all the rest of it. And it seemed as like, oh, we're really experiencing a kind of like working class liberation moment, which was completely synthetic. It was pure spectacle. It was just within the realm of the media and the world of like celebrity and PR. Um, and then how those people sort of got um, discarded by that same media. There's like the really famous example of someone like Gail Porter, who was a TV presenter, who kind of got like sexually exploited by FHM magazine and um, had lots of kind of like mental health problems afterwards. And people weren't protected um, and they were kind of used as sort of political tools in many ways. So that book, I was really angry about the kind of fetishization of working people and how this moment in time in the media where it seemed as though working people might be given a shot had then been followed by a period of time in which like the media sort of doubled down on being like incredibly aristocratic and impenetrable mm. to most working people. This time I am focusing slightly more on, on like consumer behavior Although there is a chapter in Still as Much as You Can, it's about taste. And the reason why I wrote this book is because when I published that first book, everybody said to me that the chapter on taste was their favourite. And I realised that the way that that book's written, it's a kind of like very kind of swift polemic. It's it's not like a deep research project or that's what I, I want to go away and really spend some time on this and thinking about it and reading everyone that's gone before me that's written on this subject as well. So that's the kind of relationship between those two books. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support our work by visiting patreon.com slash tenderbuttons, where you can access book discounts and giveaways, free live events at Storysmith, the opportunity to ask our guests your own questions, and so much more. Subscribers allow us to keep making the podcast, and your support is so appreciated.